Uh, we are now in the third week of a five-week series called Talking About How We Talk About Jesus. And in this series, uh, we're looking at how we talk about Jesus over what we share when we talk about Jesus. Uh, because while what we say is important, we want to make sure that we're saying it in a way that represents who Jesus is and that we're saying it in the manner that he desires us to say it. Uh, if you missed the first two sermons of this series, I really want to encourage you to go online and listen to them because this series is foundational to what we'll be doing in the fall. Um, a quick recap. We've looked at two approaches so far, the first being this, come and see. We go to our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, uh, baristas, cashiers, people in the elevator, whoever, and we invite them to come encounter Christ. It might mean you invite them to a Sunday service where they can hear the word proclaimed. It might mean you invite them to a small group one of our outward nights where we're serving in the community. It might mean you invite them to Alpha or just invite them to have a coffee and have an intentional talk about life. But you invite them to come and see and encounter Christ. The other approach we looked at last week was the go and tell approach. You see, it's one thing to invite people into our comfort zones, but it is another thing to go with the gospel into their lives, to meet them where they are, wherever it may be, even if it makes us uncomfortable. And we go and we tell stories of God's mercy. We share how God has had mercy upon us. And these approaches, they go hand in hand. We don't want to be a community that has one without the other. But this morning, I think we need to ask, uh, when we are uh, saying come and see or whether we say we go and tell, what are we actually doing? What's actually taking place? Today, our passage is Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20, and this passage will help us answer this question. It's famously called the Great Commission. This is a defining passage for the church. It is a defining passage for us as a community. If you want to know what the mission and purpose of the church is, all you need to do is turn to these last four verses in Matthew. So open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 28, verses 16. And as we've been doing in the series, we're just going to walk through this text and take in the sights along the way. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Uh, some context, really quickly. So we're in the end of Matthew's gospel. Uh, Jesus has been crucified. He was buried three days. He's resurrected. Uh, and at, at this point, at least all of his closest disciples have had some sort of encounter with him as the risen Lord. And if they haven't seen him directly, they've at least heard reports from people who have seen him directly. So when Matthew writes that the disciples are heading to a mountain in Galilee to meet Jesus, it's likely that this is just a post-resurrection instruction they received from Jesus. Hey, go and meet me in Galilee at this mountain. But there is something about verse 16 that just makes my heart sink the 11 disciples. It's been 12 disciples to this point, but no more Judas. He had betrayed Jesus. He betrayed his closest friends. And while we don't know what was going on in his mind and in his heart, Judas commits suicide. And while his suicide isn't the focus of our discussion this morning, I don't want to mention suicide without saying this. If, in, if you're stuck in a cycle of depression, or addiction, or loneliness, or, or you feel helpless and like there's no way out, please talk to someone. You don't need to hide this away. You matter. And you don't need to be ashamed about what you're feeling. We just want to encourage you to talk to someone about it. Because this is the text at hand. Judas is dead. He committed suicide. 
And now there's 11 disciples. And we have to imagine the impact that would have on the 11. The feelings of betrayal. Judas not only betrayed Jesus, he betrayed them. The anger, the hurt, but also the deep longing that this could have gone so many different ways. And in their minds and in their hearts, playing out the scenarios of how it could have ended differently, anything but this. And for any of you who've lost a loved one uh, to suicide, you know that it's a very unique pain. I know this. And I'm sorry that you've experienced it. And so it's not hard for us to imagine what an utterly heartbreaking context this is. The 11 disciples. And yet, the bleakness of the disciples' loss does not negate their continued faithfulness. The, the 11 have experienced betrayal and the loss and the confusion that comes with it. But nonetheless, they keep moving towards Jesus the best that they know how. You see, it's rare that our circumstances will ever be ideal. There will always be reasons in our hearts or in our minds as to why we can justify withdrawing from Jesus for a season or justifying why we don't think our obedience matters right now. But in these times, we have to decide to take a step forward towards Christ regardless of our circumstances. We lean into Christ instead of withdrawing. Because when bad stuff happens in our lives, and it will, when tragedies happen, it does not get to determine our obedience. If we're going to wait for the ideal circumstances, or wait until everything feels like it's in its right place before we start living radically for Jesus, we will never start living for him at all. Anyone here who's a runner, and clearly I am not, um, you know, like, no one is naturally a joyful jogger. You know, like, this is a discipline. If, if you've never run more than a, a block and you decide, oh, I want to run a 10K, uh, some training is going to be involved. You, you're going to need some persistence. Uh, the right shoes, you know, the right running soundtrack, whether it's Eye of the Tiger or if you're really, you got a good taste, you know, Fireworks by Katy Perry, just on repeat. You just run, because, baby, you're a firework. Um, but you, you have to be willing to press past your current limitations because your body won't want to do it. Uh, but if you say, well, I'm just going to wait until I wake up and my body feels like running a 10K. Uh, you know, and in the meantime, I feel like eating this box of Cheez-Its or, or cheese, a block of cheese or whatever it is that you want to eat. Um, you're never going to get any closer to your goal. If anything, you're going to move further away from it, exhibit A, you know. Uh, your body may not feel ready. And at times, you'll have to overcome some hurdles. But regardless, you have to move forward one step at a time, one kilometer at a time. You have to train even if you don't feel ready. There's 11 disciples, but they're moving in the direction of Jesus. They're mourning over the loss of a friend. They're shocked by the awe of resurrection. You can rest assured that life to them right now does not make sense. But they press on. Then we read in verse 17. When they saw Jesus, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Doubted? Doubted what exactly? Did they doubt that they were actually seeing Jesus? 
I don't think that's the case. Uh, when you look at the word Matthew uses for doubt, it's the same word that shows up in the instance in Matthew where uh, Peter attempts to walk on water. You know, the, um, the disciples, they're in a boat, uh, and I, I think T-Pain's in it, if I'm remembering correctly. But they're in a boat, they're crossing the Sea of Galilee, uh, and it's evening. And some of you got that joke, it's okay. And uh, they see Jesus walking on the water. I don't know, this is just the Lord's custom. And, and Peter says, you know, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. We see both responses present here, worship and doubt. You see, when Peter kept his eyes fixed on Jesus, he did miraculous things. But the moment he took his eyes off of Jesus and focused on his circumstances, in this case, the wind, he began to doubt. Now, he didn't doubt if Jesus could walk on water because Jesus is doing just fine. He began to doubt if he could walk on the water, and he sank. Last year, Julia and I were walking home, uh, not on water, on the sidewalk, because, you know, that's where average people walk. And um, this guy, he was crossing the street in front of us. And it was very clear to me and clear to Julia that he was checking Julia out. Now, I don't blame him. I was checking her out, too. But he gazed just a little too long. You know that, like, this is getting uncomfortable too long. Uh, and distracted for a brief moment, he took his his eyes off at the wrong time, walking in the wrong direction, and he walked full speed into a pole. Brilliant. And if that wasn't like just the greatest justice, he then looked at us and said, I guess I have to be that guy. <laughs> oh! So Julia and I just trying to hold in the laughter for his sake, and then we laughed the entire way home. When we get distracted, and our eyes get diverted from where we should be looking, we walk into poles. You know, if you're texting while you walk, you know this. Um, or in Peter's situation, you sink. Peter looked to himself when he should have looked to Jesus, and he must have thought, who am I to be doing this? I can't do this. The wind is too strong. And so he sank. This same sort of doubt is present in our text today in Matthew 28. Why do some of the disciples worship at the mountain and others doubt? Some have their eyes fixed on Jesus, and some have their eyes fixed on their uh, most present circumstances and themselves. The, one who's, the ones who doubt, um, they're not doubting whether Jesus is standing in front of them. They're doubting that Jesus might want anything to do with them at all. Don't forget, every single one of them betrayed him. They all ran away during his trial. They all fell short. And surely they're now asking, um, can Jesus still use me? Does Jesus want anything to do with me at all? They have doubts and hesitations, and we can understand why. And what does Jesus do? Look at verse 18. It's so simple. And Jesus came and said to them, 
Jesus came and said to them. Jesus is not done with them. They may be sinking into their own shortcomings. They may only be able to remember their most recent mistakes and betrayals of him. But Jesus still draws near. He still meets them. He still speaks to them. He still wants to use them. R.T. France, he was a great New Testament scholar, writes this of this circumstance. Jesus coming to his frightened disciples is an act of reassurance. He speaks to them to restore the broken relationship, and the words he will now utter will leave their failure far behind, swallowed up in the much greater reality of the mission to which they are now called. As we talk about sharing our faith with other people, you might have doubts. You might feel simply ill-prepared. Or you might feel like you just don't have enough time in your life to add this to your plate. Or you might only start to think of your shortcomings and how you are unqualified. You might just feel like you're not ready. But Jesus doesn't invite the ready into his mission. He invites those who've experienced grief and loss. He invites those who have been betrayers. He invites those who know they have fallen short time and time again. He invites those with doubts and who are hesitant to worship him. He invites those who feel uh, unready, unworthy, and undesirable, and those who at this time cannot see past their present circumstances. You see, it doesn't matter what you've done or how you've fallen short Jesus will never be done with you. And if you turn to him, he will turn to you. If you press on to him, you will surely find him. And if you look away from yourself and you look to him, you will be swallowed up by the beauty of the mission that you get to participate in. Look at what Jesus says to the 11 in verses 18 through 20. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This helps us answer the question I posed at the beginning of this sermon. When we invite people to come and see or when we go and tell, what are we really doing? We're fulfilling this command by Jesus. Go and make We're inviting people to encounter Christ or we're inviting people to hear the gospel. We're actually inviting them into the process of discipleship. What is discipleship? Here Matthew spells out two things, baptizing and teaching. In in one sense, a, a disciple entails definitively knowing who Jesus is, being welcomed into the family of God through baptism, sharing in the life of the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then on the other hand, it is learning about what Jesus taught, not just about ethics, but about who he is, and then living in light of what Jesus said about himself. So yes, discipleship is is baptizing and it's teaching. Which leads us to ask, is discipleship then only for Christians? You know, initially, I think that's what we would say. It sounds like it, and a lot of the time, the way churches and even how we do it, Discipleship is Christians helping other Christians grow in their faith and their understanding of Jesus. But I think we need to consider how Jesus himself made disciples. He invited people to follow him and figure out who he is along the way. I always like to ask, at what point were his closest disciples 
Christians in the sense that we mean it. Because the scriptures, they teach us that no one can say Jesus is Lord and mean it until they have received the Holy Spirit. And then the, the scriptures also teach us that the disciples themselves did not truly receive the Spirit until the day of Pentecost. Which means for three years, these men followed Jesus before they were Christians in the sense that we mean the term. Now, at different points along the way, they came to understandings about who Jesus was. The Father revealed to them, you know, the identity of Christ. I think of Peter in particular. But they progressively came to an understanding of who Jesus is. But it took time. The point is that discipleship is the process of learning from Jesus and following Jesus. And yes, ultimately confessing who Jesus is. But it's not always linear. Which means discipleship can be both for Christians and not yet Christians. Sometimes someone comes to believe and then they enter into this process of discipleship. But sometimes someone needs to come and belong to a community or they need to meet up with a friend over coffee again and again or they need something like Alpha. They need an environment where they can learn what Jesus said about himself. Where they can ask questions, uh, where they can see people's lives being transformed by Jesus. And by being involved in that, maybe over time, they might come to believe. You see, we need to talk about discipleship today because evangelism is best understood as a part of discipleship. Like a lot of things, the two things are better together. Like peanut butter and jelly. Right? Like you can have just peanut butter or you can have just jelly, but better together. Uh, Simon and Garfunkel. Right? Like you can get just a Simon album. You can get just a Garfunkel album, but together, those harmonies, come on, people. Or, hear me out, babies and sharks. You might be thinking, that's really weird. Unless the baby is wearing a shark towel. <laughs> Some things are just better together. Uh, in the same way, evangelism and discipleship, they're better together. They can exist apart. You can just evangelize. You can just disciple. But uh, the moment that you separate evangelism from discipleship, you've truncated evangelism uh, and you've compromised discipleship. Let me explain. I think we could probably take the baby off. I was like, <laughs> everyone seems really pay attention to the screen. There we go. Blank, blank slide. If we separate evangelism from discipleship, uh, we've truncated evangelism. If we think our only goal in sharing our faith is to get someone to check a box to the is Jesus Lord question and we stop there, then we've actually stopped short. Because the Christian life, yes, is about the truth about who Jesus is, but it is also the way of following Jesus and living in light of who he is. Uh, we don't just want people to confess that Jesus is Lord. We want them to pursue him in light of their confession. So evangelism should always give way into discipleship. But if we separate evangelism from discipleship, we've also compromised discipleship. Because if we meet people and we teach them about Jesus and we don't attempt to lead them to a definitive moment where they convert and confess who Jesus is, then we've given them some helpful knowledge. But we've stopped short of what Jesus himself desires. Jesus wants people to know who he is and what that means for the, their lives. He wants people to be saved. He wants people to convert from the life they once lived to the life lived in his uh, grace and truth. 
But it's here. I think that maybe some of you this morning are thinking, you know, why do Christians feel this need to convert people? And why can't you just leave people alone and keep your beliefs to yourself? Well, think about what Jesus even says in this passage. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. If that is true, it can't, it can't just be kind of true for some people and not everyone else. It's either true or it's false. Uh, C.S. Lewis, he's rightly said, Jesus is either a, a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Because if he has all authority, but he knows he doesn't, he's a liar. So you can dismiss him quite safely. If he doesn't have all authority uh, and he knows it, um, or he at least thinks that he has it, he's a lunatic. Uh, you can dismiss him again. But if he has all authority and he declares it, he's Lord. Now, you can dismiss that, but to your own peril. Because then you're rebelling against the one who has authority over all creation. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. You see, when Christians share their faith with people, uh, they're not just inviting people to believe what they believe. Contrary to public opinion. We're inviting people to grapple with who Jesus said he is, what he taught, and what he says is really true about the world. And you should know that when someone attempts to share their faith with you, nine times out of ten, it is not an attempt to get some sort of spiritual notch on their belts. In most cases, people aren't just trying to get you to check a yes box to Jesus and let you go on with your life. Of course, we want you to discover eternal life, but more so we want you to know the truth and beauty and power of Christ's death and resurrection and how uh, great God's love is for you. We want you to experience it. And we want you to see that the Christian life isn't just about life here and after, although it is. But it's also about the life that's made available through Christ here and now. And sometimes the best way to discover if Jesus really is who he said he is is to start following him and continue asking questions along the way. You don't have to decide who he is before you follow. But if you follow, you will eventually have to decide. That's discipleship. Jesus calls all of us who consider ourselves to be disciples to go and make disciples. So whether you invite people to come and see or whether you go and tell, you're actually fulfilling Jesus' command to go and make. And you see, if we see evangelism within discipleship, it takes the pressure off. Your responsibility is only to help people take their next right step towards Jesus. It's never, a, well, I only have this one opportunity to share the gospel, and if it doesn't go well, I blew it. It's... It's persisting and inviting people into a process of discovering who Jesus really is. But on the other hand, you might be thinking, well, discipling is like for like the super Christians, right? Like the ones that wear collars and part their hair funny. Like those are the sort of Christians that do the discipling. Uh, not so, thankfully. Uh, think about the people Jesus is commissioning here. He's talking to the disciples who have failed him time and time again. You go and you make disciples simply by inviting them to come and follow Jesus. 
You invite them into environments where they can hear his word proclaimed, where they can study his word. uh, And you also enter into their lives too. And you're real with them. When you don't know the answer to a question, you say, I don't know. But let's try to figure it out together. If you have your own doubts, you share your doubts with them. You're real with them and you walk alongside them, continually pointing towards Christ along the way. That's why we're doing Alpha. It encapsulates all these things. And maybe the next right step for you is to go to Alpha. Or maybe it's to simply invite someone to go to Alpha. And if they say yes, commit to going to it with them for that nine weeks. Engage in that journey with them. Here's the thing. If we were simply going into the world on our own authority, we wouldn't have what it takes to do this. But Jesus, in his authority, has said, go and make disciples. And so we have to own that command because the one with all authority desires this of us. It's not optional. This is a major part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And what's interesting in the Gospel of Matthew is that the disciples don't respond to Jesus' command. They don't say anything. It's one of the rare times they're actually silent. Jesus has the last word. Uh, They simply listen and understand, and as we'll see in the book of Acts, they go on to obey. Jesus' commission is to go and make disciples of all the nations. It doesn't matter who it is. Everyone needs to be discipled. But it comes with a promise. Look at the end of verse 20. I love this. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the last thing Matthew writes in his gospel. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You are never alone. Ever. There is not a moment in which Christ is not with you. And even if your circumstances seem to tell you differently, we ultimately have to trust in what Jesus has said over what we can understand. And I think it's this reality that led St. Paul to write these beautiful words in Romans 8, 38 through 39. I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. How does Paul know that? Because Jesus promised he will always be with us, even to the end of the age. He will love us with a love that will not let us go, a love that can be discovered by anyone, anywhere, at any time. I've told a lot of stories about my band days. Um, But when my band, you know, kicked me out in the middle of record negotiation um, with with a label, I became utterly hopeless. Um, Playing music, it was my only dream. It was the only thing I did out of high school for four years, and it was everything to me. I invested everything I earned into it. I invested all my time into it. It was my identity. There was no plan B, and it was gone in a moment. And it might sound dramatic, and I don't often emphasize this part of the story, but I felt suicidal. I wanted to end my life. And a few nights later, um, I was driving late in the evening, and I was driving on a highway. And I took my hands off the wheel, 
going 80K and, and prayed the first prayer I ever prayed in my entire life. And it was this, if there's a God, I need you to show up, otherwise I'm out. And as my car drifted, uh, it was as if a thought dropped out of the sky into my head. It wasn't that I heard a loud voice, just an impression. Put your hands back on the wheel. Good advice. Uh, it's not great to test the Lord. If any of you are in a place um, where you're, you're struggling with God, maybe you can just take those words from him. Put your hands back on the wheel. But then I, I ended up driving um, to this wooded area on the edge of the ocean, it was like 2 a.m., and I felt like I was supposed to walk into the woods. And it was scary. It was dark. I couldn't see where I was going, much like how I felt in my life. And eventually, the darkness surrounded me, and I couldn't see anything. I had to st stand perfectly still. And then that same thought dropped into my head, but this time I heard God say, even if the darkness overcomes you, I am with you. What's interesting is I didn't know it was Jesus at the time. I just knew that God was with me. I just knew that God loved me in my darkness, in my hopelessness, in my depression, in my failures, in my fears, and it changed me. But then three days later, convenient amount of days in retrospect, uh, a friend gave me a book. She'd never shared her faith with me, ever. She had no idea just how broken up I was inside. She had no idea that I had just had this encounter in the woods. She probably thought this small step of obedience, what could it possibly do in this guy's life? But she gave me a book, and I read that book on the next tour I went on, and it was in that book that I discovered that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. That Jesus is the one with me in my darkness. That Jesus is the one who is always with me and will not let me go. That Jesus' love is so profound for me that even at my worst, he died for me to forgive me and redeem me. And it comes with the promise. He's always with me. Do you know this love? Have you experienced it? Because it can be yours. It's free. Wherever you are in your life. Not some uh, future version of yourself that's perfect and has everything together. The you that is a mess. The you that is at your lowest. The you that feels like you do not deserve it. That is the you that God loves. You just have to turn to Christ and trust him. And believe in him. And ask him to come into your life and recognize that he is your savior, he is your king, he is your God, and that he truly does forgive, and that he truly is with you. So, when you invite someone who does not yet believe into the process of discipleship, you are ultimately inviting them to encounter a love that will not let them go. Never underestimate what God can do with your simple act of obedience. And what compels you to share Jesus with others um, is a love that will not let you go. And what will reassure you, especially when you feel ill-prepared or like you're not ready or that the circumstances are wrong, is that Jesus is always with you. And he has authority over all things, which means whatever comes your way, whether through hell or high water, Christ is with you. 
which means you never have to fear what comes your way, whether it is tragedy or whether it is someone simply rejecting you. You just have to trust in the one who has authority over all things. The best part, in my opinion, of Matthew's gospel is that this is the last part of his gospel. I mean, it's not because I think Matthew's particularly long. It's, It's that the end is only the beginning. This is the beginning of the church. This is the ongoing reality that all of us find ourselves in. Go and make disciples. In the last two weeks of this series, we're going to look at how Christ's followers did this in the early church. We're going to look at Philip again, and we're going to look at an instance with Paul. But for now, with Jesus, the one who has all authority, the one who is with you, go and make disciples. Invite people to come and see, and go tell people of God's profound mercy.